iTunes presents Meet the Author. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Apple Store Soho. Uh, we're real thrilled to have you here this evening to participate in our very first Meet the Author event. Uh, this new series will give authors a chance to share their latest works and participate in a discussion with you, the audience. We're really thrilled to launch this new series with Alan Alda, the acclaimed actor and best-selling author of the memoir, Never Have Your Dog Stuffed. Tonight, Alan's here to talk about his new book, Things I Overheard While Talking to Myself in which he looks at the critical points in his life. His first Broadway show, September 11th, a near-death experience on a Chilean mountaintop, and wonders whether there's any one thing that leads to a life of meaning. Before we turn it over to Alan, we'd like to let you know that the audiobook is available for download from the iTunes store. And also, we're recording tonight's event for a new Apple-produced podcast, which you can download along with this audiobook from the iTunes store. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming Alan Alda. Thank you. Hi. Hi, hello, how are you? Hi. Oh, thank you, how nice to see Look at all these, well, this is great, hi. You know, there are seats here if you want to sit. There are more seats. You don't want to see how it goes first, right? <laughs> Isn't this place great, this, this cathedral of cool? How nice to be here. And thank you for coming to hear a little about my book. Um, this, this, as you just heard, this follows um, a book that came out a couple of years ago. And this picks up where that left off, um, which was down in Chile when, and you may have heard this before, but I'll, for those who don't know the story, I'll, I'll just bring you up to date. I, I nearly did die down, down there uh, four years ago on October 19th. My, my new birthday is coming up pretty soon. I, I, I date my birthdays now from, from that, that uh, day in Chile, that night, middle of the night. I was in, a, I was in an, uh, an observatory up on top of a mountain, and um, I got this terrible pain in my gut, and I didn't know what it was. And it was really starting to kill me after about an hour. I couldn't stand it. And it was all doubled over in, in pain. And um, we were 8,000 feet up on top of this mountain outside a small town. And uh, they, had a, they had a medic in, in the observatory. And I, I don't think he'd been called on to do too much before this. And he, he, I, he came over to me, he said, how, uh, how do you feel? And I'm all doubled up, you know, I'm, all, I'm completely a pretzel. He said, I said, I, it's, it's pain, I can't stand it. Uh, and it's moved down over here to the right-hand side. I think maybe it's my appendix. And he said, I think so too. So I didn't get really terribly confident about that. And, and I, I had this, uh, they, up on the mountaintop in this observatory, they had, a, um, they had an ambulance. And it, it looked like one of those ambulances we had on MASH. Big boxy thing. And it wouldn't start. It ran just like those ambulances too. They couldn't get, so I'm lying in the back screaming because it was really painful. And they finally got it started, and they took me down this bumpy road for an hour and a half to this small hospital in La Serena. And, and you know, there are, there are very skilled surgeons all over Chile, but I really didn't expect to find a doctor who was 
an expert in exactly what was wrong with me in the middle of the night in this small town. So he, he, he examined me and he figured out what was wrong. And what was wrong was I had about a yard of my intestine that was dead. And within a couple of hours, I was going to be dead too. So he, he leans into me and, to, and sort of tries to talk through the, the fog of, of the pain and the morphine. And he says, what's happened is some of your intestine has gone bad. And we have to cut out the bad part and sew the two good ends together. And I said, oh, you're going to do an end-to-end -end anastomosis. And you, you should have seen his face when I said that. He said, how do you know that? I said, oh, I did many of them on MASH. <laughs> and I did. That was the funny thing. I, that was the first operation I learned about on MASH. And they had invented that operation for the Korean War. And while he was in high school, he was watching MASH. So the two of us came to this evening from a fictional background, you know. And, and, and then so he, they, they put me under, and, and he did the operation. And, and the way the story ended was I lived. <laughs> but when I woke up alive, I was so happy. I was actually manic. I was euphoric. I couldn't get over being alive. And I, I started thinking about how I could get the most juice out of my life, you know. I mean, I, this happens, I think, to most people who, who have come back or, come, or not gone all the way when they've got to the death, the, to the door of death. And I, I think uh, most of the people I've talked to have the same feeling of, oh, my God, I, this is now extra time I have. I've been given a bonus here. And you want to make the most of it, you know? And I was reading, or I started to read um, talks I had given when I was uh, asked to speak, like at commencements and uh, things I had said to young people, I was remembering things I had said to my children and my grandchildren. And I, was, and I noticed I was always asking them to look for their values and try to live by their values. And, and I, was, I was always urging them to think about a life of meaning. So in the middle of the night now, this is after I come back and I'm, I'm thinking about all this stuff, I hear this voice in the back of my head. I can't sleep one night. And, and the voice says, so have you lived a life of meaning? And I said, what? Come on, what, are you kidding? I, I love my life. I, I have a perfect life. No, 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 the voice said, no. If, if, you, if you don't wake up tomorrow, will this have been a life of meaning? <laughs> and I'm thinking, oh, oh, I see. Meaning. <laughs> yeah, right. Oh, so I, I started to think about this, and I got obsessed with it. And this was the beginning of a horrible year and a half where that's all I was thinking. I was talking to my friends. Do you, do you think you live a life of meaning? I'm constantly talking. And you know, this thing about values is not so easy. If, if, you're, if you're lucky enough to figure out what you value, sticking by it is, I find, not that easy. Um, and I was, I was talking to one of my friends about this a couple of weeks ago. And I said, you know, I, I think I have this value. I don't like to go fishing because I don't like to kill the fish. But I eat fish. You know, I let somebody else kill the fish for me. And he said, well, you know, I said, look, I'm a hypocrite. You know, I mean, I have to face that. He said, well, listen, you know, the nice thing about being a hypocrite is you get to hang on to your values. <laughs> and actually, it's a, good, it's a good way to look at it because you don't have to, you know, suffer too much from that. But the thing is, it's hard to know even what the values are. So I was thinking about all this and I was trying to get this answer 
And there were a lot of um, there were a lot of things I had said that I could look back on. You know, when you get well-known enough, you get asked to speak a lot of places, and very often it's places where you have no business being because you don't know what, what, what these people really do, you know, in their lives. I mean, for instance, soon after MASH got very popular, I was asked to give the commencement talk at the Columbia College of Physicians and Surgeons. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know anything about surgery or medicine. I was afraid people would think because I played a doctor that I thought I knew. And, and so I said to the kids that day, I said, you know, maybe, maybe the reason I'm here is that they taught you everything they could about how to become a doctor, and now they brought somebody in to show you how to act like one. <laughs> but what I, what I found was I, there was something, that I, and, and, and I did this, and I found I could do this in most of these talks where I really didn't belong, was to find some personal angle to come in on. Because I realized when I thought about it, there was an area of medicine that I was expert in, and that was as a patient. So I just begged them to think of me and all their patients as people and not as cases. You know, like don't, don't, uh, don't say, uh, take this to the liver in room 213, but to talk about, find out who we are, listen to us. And they you know, what I really loved about that day was I realized that those young people becoming doctors wanted to be that kind of doctor. It made me feel really good. But the reason that I went to these places where I shouldn't have been was because it scared me. And, and scaring myself, I think, makes me feel more alive. And so I'm, I'm, I was wondering, is that, is that one of these ways that I get this feeling of meaning? Because I do it not only with places I'm asked to talk, but even in, in when I act, you know, when I'm asked to play a part. If it's a part... That, that scares me a little bit because I don't know how I'm going to be that kind of person. And that was true of Hawkeye in, in, in MASH, too. I didn't, I didn't know how I was going to be that guy because he didn't seem anything like me. And the, the, the frightening prospect of, of becoming something that you're not and not quite being sure how you're going to do that is a terrific feeling because you, you wind up looking for an original way to do it because you've never done it before, so you can't do it the same old way. But I did, I, I said yes to so many places that, that scared me. They, um, I was asked to talk at Monticello about Thomas Jefferson in front of historians. And I went. And I, I was, I, 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 I was, I started, made myself crazy because I was, I was reading everything I could because I realized they didn't know that much about Jefferson. So I started to read every book that had the word Jefferson in the title. And then I realized, what are you kidding? These, these people not only read these books, they wrote some of them. So I had to figure out some way to bring something to it that nobody had ever heard before. Because I, 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 I didn't want to say what they already knew. I wanted to say something that they'd never heard, but which also had the virtue of being true. So I, just, I realized I was going to go to China for the science show. that I, I did a science show for this, where I, why I was down in Chile, uh, Scientific American Frontiers. So we were going to go to China to talk to Chinese scientists. And I thought to myself, I'll do just what I used to do when I was an improviser. We, when we were out on the stage and we were making up a show on the spot, we'd say, just reach into the dark and pull out an answer. So that's what I said. I'm going to go to China, and in China, I'll find out something about Thomas Jefferson that nobody's ever heard before.
So I went to China and I asked everybody about Jefferson. I said, have you ever heard of Thomas Jefferson? <laughs> Not a single person had ever heard of Thomas Jefferson. So now I'm stuck over there. I got two weeks to do the speech. But I met one scientist. His name was Yuan Longping. And we talked, we were standing in a rice paddy. He had invented hybrid rice. And he had fed hundreds of millions of Chinese and people all over Asia with this hybrid rice. Nobody could do it before he invented it. It was too, too difficult. And nobody, not many people there knew real biology. He almost risked his life teaching himself real biology because you were supposed to learn Lysenkoism, which was a Soviet form of biology that didn't really have any, didn't have much reality associated with it. But he got under the blanket with a flashlight every night and taught himself real biology and then used his inventiveness and hybridized rice. And those seeds fed hundreds of millions of people. And I realized while I was talking to him, I was talking to a Chinese Thomas Jefferson. The, the Jefferson story was that when he was in Paris, he jumped over a bush in a park to impress a woman he was with and fell and broke his hand. This is a real genius thing to do. So he has a broken hand. And he has to recuperate, so he tells everybody he's going to Italy to recuperate, which was not true. It was a secret mission because he heard that in the Piedmont region, there was a kind of rice that grew in the highlands. And the only rice they had in Virginia was that it grew down in the lowlands that were swampy and had a lot of mosquitoes and everybody was getting malaria. So he wanted to get this rice out of Piedmont, but it was against the law to take the rice across the border under pain of death. So this is, Thomas Jefferson did this. He walked across the border, filled his pockets with rice, and walked back across the border. He could have been killed for that. And I realized that this is the same, now I was talking in China, I was standing there talking to a guy who was the Chinese modern version of this. They had both risked their lives over a new kind of rice that fed their countrymen. There were, there were. I could, I could, I could. I felt I could see Jefferson. I could, I could smell him. I could, I could touch him. I got to know a person, a, a, a part of his personality. So I went back and I told this to the historians, and they loved it, and I got away with it again. <laughs> but the, I think the the craziest one I did, I still hadn't. It still, I thought, are these is are these things what's giving me this? this sense of meaning, and it, it still wasn't, even when I did something even more personal at, the, at this other place, which was I was asked to give the Grand Rounds lecture at a psychiatric hospital in front of psychiatrists. And the one thing I thought I could talk about that they probably didn't know as much about as I did was celebrity, and I called it celebrity and its discontents. Because for 35 years, actually for longer than that, because my father was famous and I used to observe him, pretty much all my life, I've seen what it's like on both sides of celebrity. And it's very interesting. It's very curious. And, you know, celebrity has been, in a way, been wonderful for me because now people are interested in seeing my acting. They're interested in seeing what I write, partly because I got well-known and mostly from uh, from the the mash series but but we all have this funny experience when we meet somebody who's well known i had it when i met lee volman lee volman was my heartthrob from all those swedish movies and 
I met her. Somebody introduced us. We were standing in a parking lot of a Chinese restaurant, and and there was a right over our heads while we talked. There was an air conditioner, and the exhaust was blowing the the smells of rancid oil and garlic all over us. And to me, it was the smell of new mown hay. You know, while I'm looking at Lee Ullman and I'm thinking about these Swedish movies, and it took me about 15 minutes to realize that I was just talking to another person, to a to a fellow actor. Well, the, the thing that I realize is when all of us meet somebody who for us is, is a famous person, we, we have this very strange reaction. What happens is we lose motor control. We, we drop things, we stumble into things. I, I, before I got used to this, when, uh, when I first got, uh, when MASH was first popular, I was in a restaurant, and, and a guy, a big guy, reached out across his dinner table to shake my hand. So I reached over, and I shook his hand, and involuntarily, his arm pulled back, and he pulled me across the table, and I fell all over his roast beef. <laughs> Did, you know what happens? People lose their sense of syntax. I can't tell you how many dozens of people have come up to me and said, you're my biggest fan. I, I'm dozens, dozens, and I've asked everybody I know who's famous. They said people come up to them and say it too. It's a common uh, slip, and I don't know where it comes from, but I thought that the psychiatrist would like that because they, they go for slips, you know. But it's actually physically dangerous to be famous. I mean, I don't want to put it down, but it really is dangerous. I would, uh, when we were doing the science show in Italy, I, we were doing a story on the Leaning Tower of Pisa. So I walked into the tower with the man who was, who was the curator of the place, and he knew me from television. So he was showing me around. He said, you know, it's very dangerous in this tower. You know, the, the tower is leaning so badly. There's so much pressure on the center of it. It's not just going to fall over. It'll explode. <laughs> and we're heading for the stairs. You know? <laughs> and I see this sign that says, no one permitted beyond this point. I said, do you, do you let people up here? He said, oh, no, but in your case, we'll make an exception. <laughs> and this, the, a very similar thing happened in Ohio, like a, about 15 years earlier. MASH was at its height, and we were driving, uh, we were driving, it's driving through a, a terrible downpour to get to a theater before uh, the curtain went up. And, and the roads were, were flooded, it was hard to drive, and you could hardly see anything ahead of you. We're getting to a bridge, and through this driving rain, I can see police cars parked on the bridge, and their lights are flashing. And there's a cop standing there, waving his arm, saying, No, go back, go back. The bridge is going to be flooded. It's going to be washed out. Go back. And I pull up the car, and I roll down the window, and he sees me. He says, Oh, I'm sorry. Go right ahead. You could, I mean, I swear to God, if you're not careful, you know, my wife said, what are you, crazy? Back up the car. You, you, have, to, you have to watch out for yourself. When, I, when, 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 we, were, when we were doing uh, the mass show, two FBI guys came to see me, and they said, a woman has escaped from a mental institution in Florida, and she has a handgun, and she's coming to Hollywood to get even with you and Clint Eastwood. Apparently, Clint Eastwood and I had abducted her in a car and done something unspeakable, and she was coming to shoot us both. 
It wasn't me, it was Clint. And he went, you know, he disappeared right after they went to Carmel, became the mayor. Nobody saw him for a couple of years, and I had to take the heat for that. But I still couldn't figure out what was this meaning thing. And when I looked back over, over my whole life, I realized that I had, I had really lived through all of the things that are supposed to give meaning to your life. You know, like that celebrity business. When I was young, I was politically very active, uh, love of family, loving your work, being trying to be an artist all your life. You know, I mean, all of these things are supposed to give it to you. And yet I felt I hadn't found it yet. I, that not, no single one of them did it. And certainly not accomplishments. You know, you, you, you accomplish things and they give you awards for them. You get these little statues. I don't think I'm going to say at the end of my life, well, I'm dying now, but at least I got those statues. I'm going to want something else, something, something that makes me more aware of some sense of satisfaction or accomplishment that's, that's, not, that's, more, that's deeper down inside. And, and it was a, a right around this time I started to come across something that Marcus Aurelius said. Marcus Aurelius, of course, was this Roman emperor who was a wonderful writer. So he had this great combination. He had a, an amazing storehouse of, of, of experience, and he could put it into words. And while I was in the midst of this, this search, this sentence jumped off the page at me while I was reading Marcus Aurelius. And he said, all we have is the present moment. And I think he was making another point about about fame and what lives after you, but it, that clicked with something that a scientist had told me, a neuroscientist had told me a couple of years ago, and it was about the present moment. And he said, you know, our experience of now only lasts about five seconds, five or six seconds. That's all. That's, we're in now for just that long. And everything before that is a memory. We're all now in now, just for, just for the next five seconds, and then it's going to move on. And that means that when I was talking before about Marcus Aurelius, which wasn't long ago, that's not now anymore. That's just, we all have a memory of that, but we don't. It's not part of our common now. And and this this now just keeps moving, and I want to try to keep up with it as it moves. Because, you know, it, it, like before when I said, when I was talking about Marcus Aurelius before, that's a memory too. So I'm trying to stay with it as it goes. And I notice the funniest things happen when I stay with it. When I get into now, I see things that I didn't notice before. I see colors. I hear, th I hear people's, I hear, I hear what people are saying better. And I, this is the strangest thing to me. If I'm sitting next to somebody who I think is kind of boring, I start, going, I start doing this now thing. This, I get into the present moment. He becomes less boring. All of a sudden, I hear he's got an interesting story that I can pursue. But I'm seeing colors. I see colors in your face right now. I see, you know how the, the impressionist 
told us, showed us how there are more colors. I mean, a face is not just pink. I'm seeing blues and greens and browns. And, and I didn't see that before. I mean, I've been looking at you all night. I barely noticed you until I, until I decided I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this present moment thing. And it, to me, that's a function of curiosity. And I'm, I'm hoping to keep that going all the way through to the end. I talk about this a little bit in the book, but since I've been thinking about it, since I wrote the book, it, it's, it's even more important to me. And I'm beginning to think this is, um, this is what I've been searching for uh, for the whole time that I've been, I've been working on this book. It, it's, it's, it, it's very much like what uh, Richard Feynman did with his life. I, I don't know if you know Richard Feynman. It, that's a book you got to get is... Uh, Surely you're joking, Mr. Feynman. It's a delightful collection of anecdotes by one of the most brilliant people who ever lived. Richard Feynman, a lot of people think, was second to Einstein. And he was curious about everything. Nothing, nothing was trivial to him. He was interested in everything. He was one of the people who helped uh, invent the atomic bomb. And... The people who were working on the bomb, he, he, he says in one of his books that they didn't think about how destructive it was going to be very much. What they thought about was, while they were doing it, they were thinking, this is a fascinating puzzle. You know, how, how, can, how can we solve this? It's so difficult to solve, which, which kept them going and, 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 and gave them energy. But when the bomb finally went off and killed so many people, and the destructive power was so clear to everyone. Many of the scientists who had worked on it got depressed and Feynman was one of them. Feynman was extremely depressed. He was up in Cornell teaching and he at a certain point he couldn't do his work. He was um, he, he was just unable to lecture, unable to, to do his calculations and what happened to him was one day he was in the cafeteria and I guess he had one of these moments where he just was in that moment and he was seeing what was happening and interested in it a kid was tossing a plate up in the air and it was it was spinning and as the plate spun it wobbled a little bit he watched the uh, the emblem the Cornell emblem on the plate go around and around and he could see the wobble and he thought I wonder if there's a relationship between the wobble and the spin and that's a trivial question it seems right but he started to figure out if he started to do calculations on it. He went home and he did more calculations. He worked on that problem for the next several months and he found a relationship mathematically between the wobble and the spin. So he took it to Hans Bethe, the, uh, another great physicist who was his mentor, and he said, look, I, look what I found. And, and Bethe said, well, that's very interesting, Feynman, but what's the significance? And he said, it has no significance. It's just fun. And from that moment on, he decided he would never work on a problem that wasn't fun. And, and the amazing thing about that was he said that in a circuitous way, the calculations he did on that spinning plate led eventually to the work he did that won him the Nobel Prize. So in a way, you could say there isn't anything that's trivial if you give it enough attention, if you really become interested, if you become curious about it. And he had that right up until the end. When he was dying of cancer, he said to his doctor, 
when I go, I don't want you to give me an anesthetic. Because if I'm going to die, I want to be there when I do. Isn't, what a wonderful... What a, that, that's, that, that makes me... That makes him, for me, the closest I can come to having a hero. Because he's not going to be able to talk about it to anybody later. He can't write about it. It's, he's just going to experience it. It's going to be a once-in-a-lifetime experience, and he'll have it, and that'll be it. And that's what I'm hoping for all the way through. I, I don't know if that's meaning anymore, but at least it, it obliterates the, the worry about meaning because I'm, I'm involved in what I'm doing. So I'm, I'll, in, a, in a second, I'll see if, uh, if anybody has any questions. We can have a conversation for a couple of minutes. But meanwhile, I'm very glad to have had this now here with you tonight. And I thank you for coming tonight. Thank you. So did that, uh, did that spark any thoughts or questions? Anybody have? I'll come over to you with a microphone. If you, okay, here. I'll meet you halfway. Okay. I have a, take me a second to get there. You can... You can work on it, and the, uh, you can revise your question while I'm coming. Okay. It seems like your uh, obsession with meaning is something that occurs to people who are suffering. <laughs> in other words, and the same with the obsession with the now. It's something that happens when you're in pain. Is it something that are you interested in, interested in being happy or interested in, in, in understanding? Oh, that's a really good question. Boy, that's the best question I ever got. I, you, you know, I, I don't know. Um, I don't. I don't know if it's even though it's in the Declaration of Independence, isn't that isn't that isn't it the pursuit of happiness? Isn't that in the Declaration? I don't know if um, you can get happy. I don't know if that's a good goal. There was a scientist. I think it was von Neumann. I can't remember. Some scientist said, um, "Wanting to be happy is like wanting to build a machine." That whose only function is it doesn't make any noise, and uh, I mean the the thing is not to be happy. The thing is, I, if anything, the pursuit of happiness. You know, it's the pursuit. It's the, it's looking. The as much as I didn't, as much as I drove myself crazy looking for meaning, it was more fun than coasting. You know, and of course I'm looking for understanding. I think, I think the search for meaning is a search for understanding. But there's always something to understand under that, I think. Well, wait, wait, I'm coming back. Wait a minute. <laughs> this is good. I should have stayed here. I didn't, I didn't know we were going to do it like a show. This is a difficult part about not being religious. I'm not. So it's, your world doesn't have this sort of prescribed meaning, which is, includes uh, uh, your role with the God and creation. All this. You have to sort of invent your own, uh, start from scratch, and... Uh, I think that's all, why a lot of people seek the security of a of a religion. Something. Yeah, I don't know. I I think that uh, probably no matter no matter what your belief system is, you probably still have questions to ask, and you probably still have to. I I can only report on my own experience and see if it's interesting to anybody else, and interesting, and or entertaining, you know. But um, there, the, it life is funny in that it's. It appears to be chaotic enough to keep us on our toes, no matter no matter how f well fixed we are for a, s a set of uh, beliefs and values. Anybody else? Ah, wait. Okay, one second. Okay, I'm gonna stop right here.
All right. Do you think we're all uh, connected somehow through our energies? Um, only in the sense that we all are subject to gravity. <laughs> I, uh, I don't. Uh, yeah, consciousness. I don't know. I find it hard enough to make myself understood using words. And when I close my eyes and squint and try to make you know what I'm thinking, what am I thinking now? What am I thinking? Say, you don't know. I'm hungry. <laughs> no, I, 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 there was a time when I explored that. And I, and I, I used to do uh, games with people where we'd try to read one another's minds and stuff. And I actually uh, sometimes thought that I could, but I, I doubt it very much. I th I'm very doubtful about it. I certainly can't say that it doesn't exist, but I'm just doubtful. I'm, I'm skeptical of it. Yeah. Did you have your... Oh, you did. Sorry. I would like to thank you for the Jefferson's, Thomas Jefferson story, because we're all from Torino, Piedmont in Italy. We couldn't figure out where their eyes went. And finally <laughs> we know. <laughs> did you all hear that? <laughs> it, they're, they're, they're from the Piedmont region of Italy, and they're so glad I told the Jefferson story, because they couldn't figure out where the rice went. <laughs> That's great. Thank you. That's wonderful. Are you visiting here now? Are you, are you, 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 you working here? Huh? Hmm. <laughs> Tonight? Yeah, good. Who had a hand up over? Okay, thanks. Here I come. It's good to see you again, Alan. Uh, I want to tell everyone, buy that book. <laughs> Got to support Alan here, and my cousin uh, was the editor on the book. I read both of them, and they were excellent. And I wanted to tell you, I think the reason we're all here is because um, we all love you. I've, you remember that banner uh, of the 92nd Street Y? They unfurled it on the balcony and they said we came all the way from Virginia or Maryland just to see Alan Alda and you asked them why and that's and they said because we love you and I think that's what the reason why we're here I'm starting to cry don't <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much thank you I what did your cousin do on the book he was your editor. oh oh I'm oh great oh that's wonderful his cousin was the editor on the book thank you very much here, here. Thanks. Uh, I just wanted to comment on MASH and what it did for me and, and, and the positive uh, spin it put on war and especially how it ties in with today. But I'm not going to talk about religion or, or, or uh, the war. Uh, but I do have a question for the MASH series. Um, w w I'm assuming that all the scripts were, uh, all, the, all the shows were scripted, but how much room was there for improv on your, on your behalf and the other actors on the set of MASH? And also, and also I just saw Paper Lion. I don't know how many people seen Paper Lion from 1968. I just saw that again after 25 years, and I think it's the best sports uh, sports journalist movie ever done. Oh, that's nice. Thank you. Now, uh, that's an interesting question about improvising on MASH. I, as I mentioned before, I, I began as an improviser and loved improvising, and I was always trying to lobby for a show in which we would improvise. However, we were all trained on the stage where you don't change a word of what's written. And we never changed a word of any, uh, any, on any show without asking if it was okay. So there was no on-camera improvisation except in one show where they, um, they, had they figured out a way f to do uh, an improvising show. Not, at, not because I'd requested it, because they had figured out a way to do it. And they wanted to do it, the producers. And, um, and w that was the show that was the interview. It was a black and white interview. And it was pretty much all improvised. We had a bunch of questions, and we would go off by ourselves and improvise as the character into a tape recorder. And then that was put together in the script, and Larry Gelbart 
organized it and punched it up with some jokes. But then, while when we did that on camera, even though it was based on an improvisation, we were still sticking to the script until the, the interviewer asked us things we had never heard before. And on camera, we improvised as the characters, and some of the best stuff came out that way. It was very spontaneous, and it had a feel of, it had a texture of reality that it's hard to get any other way. But up until then, we never veered a little bit from, the, from what was written. There was a scene that we were doing out on the ranch in the first season, and that was before the show was a success. And the studio was spending so little money on the show, they hadn't even put a telephone line out on the, in the mountains where we were. So we had no way to communicate with the office. And we got to this line in the, in the script that I didn't understand and Wayne Rogers didn't understand, and I had to say it. And Wayne said, what do you, what do you think it means? I said, I don't know. Maybe it's, maybe it's a joke of Larry Gelbart's that we just don't get. So I said it the way it was written. And the next day we were watching the rushes and Larry was sitting next to me. He said, why did you say that? I said, that's what you wrote. He said, no, that was a typo. <laughs> but I said it, you know, and we, we went back and reshot it. But the, that's how strict we were about the whole thing. Somebody had a hand. Yeah. How do you find the experience of reading other people's lines and, and acting those to writing your own book and having it published? Oh, that's interesting. You all heard that, right? The, 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 how do I compare uh, acting somebody else's uh, lines, you know, written by someone else, uh, to to writing my own book? It's a, it's 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 not only different in that regard. It's different in the sense that if I write a movie script, even if I direct it myself, it goes through so many other minds and so many other collaborators that it's not exactly what I imagined. But when you do the book. Is, is it like a direct connection between me and the brain of the reader? And I'm hoping to put the reader through a series of experiences that is, is meaningful and, and, and delightful, and I'm tickling their brain, I hope. And, but it's directly. It's me and the reader. And that's a much... Um, it's very different. As a writer, I think it's more interesting. But there's, a, there's an ecstasy to acting regardless of whose lines you're saying, if you, can, if you can have a spontaneous moment occur and the people in the room with you get drawn into that spontaneous moment and you're all in that same place and time together, there's nothing like that. It's, a, it's an extraordinary feeling. That's one of the reasons I think I go and give talks uh, or have done that as much as I, I have because I just want to get together with people and and ex and do this thing this expressive thing that it's just like it's like dancing or something it's that it's not that you're not that you're saying things that register on them as thoughts so much as you go through an experience together it's like a herd experience and that's really um something fun about that then to be the one up at this end of it can be ecstatic yeah, I'm coming right over. Um, actually, I, I, what year was it that you gave the commencement speech at Columbia? Um, let's see, seventy something, seven. 
Right. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm not surprised at all that you were invited, actually, because it wasn't until the early 80s in medical school, I'm a doctor, I'm a uh, surgeon, and uh, that even the, that the concept of teaching uh, medical ethics or thinking about issues that weren't just to do with the academics of medicine or even came into medical school. Mm. And uh, I got mine from MASH, Marcus Welby, uh, Dr. Kildare, um, who's the other one? Uh, Ben Casey, absolutely. Oh. That's where I got mine from. Oh, uh, yeah. so, so you guys were the original ethics teachers of us uh, doctors now. That's hair-raising. <laughs> I'm, I'm so glad that I had my operation in Chile. <laughs> you, you taught him. I, I taught him too, right, right. I was hoping that he would tell me that... Um, that he, he decided to become a doctor because he watched MASH, but I could never get him to say that. He, he, he just enjoyed it and that he wanted to be a doctor. Yeah, I'll come around behind you one second. I think we'll just take a couple more because people, I'm sure, need to go home and eat. Where are you? Glad you're here. Yes. Hi, how are you? Hi. I uh, wanted to touch a little bit about the, the aspect of your uh, epiphany of being present and uh, how that is leading towards you, I would say, designing your future, per se. So now that you, you know that you're present and, and all the choices that you can make about how you spend your present, does that give you more insight about how you're going to plan the rest of your life? And, and can you then, you know, say, that then becomes an educational forum for young minds, per se, to, if you empower them and say, hey, you know, if you become present, at a young age about what your life is in the now, then you can step by step systematically plan your future. Is that something that you might in engage? That, that's, that's very interesting. Thank you. I, I, um, I think a couple of things happen. I'm just, I can only talk from my own experience. I notice, and, and I, this has been true for me since I was a kid and, and trying to learn how to be spontaneous and be an improviser. The more I concentrated on the present moment, the less intellectualized I got about my future so that I was able to take whatever came my way and make the most of it. And I think that maybe the thing that's contributed the most to my success, to whatever success I've had, is that I, I took what was in front of me and I made something of it. And no matter how how dumb it seemed at the time. And I either learned something from it or it, it moved me a step forward, uh, getting me another job, another chance to do something else. So I didn't, I didn't decide in a rigid way on what my future was gonna be. In a way, the future came to me and I, I, I made that part of the present moment. So I, I kept going from moment to moment. The other thing I noticed, this surprises me a little bit. The more I'm in the present moment, not only do I hear other people better, I hear what's in the back of my own head better. So some of that stuff that's the real me, the, that's where the, where the best thinking is going on at an unconscious level, where all the experiences and all the things I've read and heard are getting put together and, and tumbled in this cement mixer and, and something's, something's coming out of that. I'm better able to get in touch with that the, the more I relax into being aware of what's really happening instead of what I wish were happening, what ought to be happening, and that kind of thing. So I'm, that helps me get to a better future because 
I connect my future with who I'd like to be, who, who's the best part of me in the, at the unconscious level. And these get very, this is, now this is spooky. Okay, so what, what we're getting into now. Uh, but I, I think we, we, ought to, we ought to end it there. I want to tell you how I feel. Oh, hi, I didn't, never didn't see you. Look at how I'm talking about the present moment. Hi, what's your name? What's your Vincent. What, Vincent? Yeah. Oh, Vincent, how are you? I'm glad. How old are you? Three. Oh, I love that. That's, um, thank you for coming tonight, Vincent. Very glad to see you here. And I want to thank all of you, too, who aren't Vincent for coming. It's been a pleasure talking with you. I felt like I got to know you a little bit. Thank you. This episode of Meet the Author was produced by iTunes and the Apple Store in New York's Soho District. To purchase the audiobook or listen to more episodes in the series, click the link below or search for Meet the Author in the iTunes Store.